Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Paying attention to ADHD. Is it really just a fad? By Henna Kundal. In a feat of irony, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, commonly known as ADHD, is now getting a lot of attention. For example, between the 28th and 31st of January, the Times newspaper published one article per day about ADHD. Intrigued? I looked back over the past few months and I found that the Times had averaged 8 to 10 articles per month which were either partly or exclusively about this topic. These range from celebrity diagnoses to hand-wringing over the troubling rise in incidents of the condition to concerns about parents gaming the system to get their children disability payments or extra time in exams. With all this media hype, it is little wonder that some commentators are inclined to dismiss ADHD as a fad. Scroll through the comments beneath each article and you will reliably find the rallying cry of we didn't have ADHD in my day, followed by patient responses of those who try to correct this fallacy. While the high profile of ADHD is new, the condition itself is not. As early as the mid-1700s, a professor of medicine called Melchior Adam Weichardt was describing patients who were unwary, careless and flighty behaving in ways governed by impulse and showing poor skills in punctuality, accuracy and having an inability to complete tasks to the detriment of their mental health. His description is of its day. For example, and somewhat amusingly, Weichardt, himself German but at this point living in Russia, also described his patients as follows. Compared to an attentive and considerate person, such a jumpy person may act like a young Frenchman does in comparison to a mature Englishman. Even so, Vicard did not unconsciously adopt all the prejudices and stereotypes of his context. He broke firmly with existing medical consensus when he diagnosed these patients as having a dysregulation in cerebral fibres, rather than attributing their difficulties to astrological misalignments or demon possession. By characterising ADHD as a brain-based condition, Vicard was ahead of his time, and we've come a long way since then. This is not the place to chart the whole biography of ADHD. Suffice to say that when someone rolls their eyes and declares dismissively, we didn't have ADHD in my day, they are either over 300 years old or not talking like a mature Englishman, even if they read the Times. Another thing that is not new, despite what cynical commentators might seek to imply, is the treatment of some aspects of ADHD with medication. Doctors have been prescribing amphetamines to patients with ADHD since at least the 1950s. Yet now those medications are in short supply. Contrary to the media hype, fewer than 1 in 10 people with an ADHD diagnosis take prescribed medication. But for some of those who do, it can be a lifeline 
calming down a washing machine mind that is stuck on a constant spin. One acquaintance of mine has taken to anxiously touring the local pharmacies, driving to neighbouring towns and villages, desperate to get her prescription filled. Another is passing her own tablets on to her son, whose prescribed supply ran out sooner. Sharing prescription medication is, I am duty-bound to add, an illegal practice. But it is hard to expect a parent to medicate themselves while seeing their own child struggle to attend school, to complete exam papers, and to just feel, and I quote, like a normal person. People who have ADHD sometimes describe the negative side of the condition as being in a constant fight with one's own thoughts and senses. These are the doughty components. They always know where to find you. They only sleep when you do. This is not to overlook that there are positives to ADHD too. It is often pointed out that the condition entails a degree of superpower. A person living with ADHD may have an incredible ability to focus on one difficult problem to the exclusion of all else, and thus solve it, perhaps devising creative solutions that elude those with more pedestrian style of thought. Also, it is common for people who live with ADHD to be dynamic conversationalists with high social intelligence and empathy, priming them for success at tasks like broadcasting and debating. Many elite athletes also live with ADHD and say that they are able to strive for excellence due to their restless energy and resilience in the face of tough training regimes. Given the mixed bag of struggles and superpowers, there is a raging debate about whether ADHD should even be considered as pathology or just a neurodivergent way of being human. I suspect there is no right or wrong answer to this. For each person who lives with ADHD, it depends on their own experience and how they feel it helps or hinders them to live the life they choose. Neither is it a binary choice. More than one of my own acquaintances who live with ADHD has described themselves as being in a love-hate relationship with their neurodivergence. Neurodiversity, like any diversity, challenges the way we live together in communities, choosing or refusing to show empathy towards those who are perceived as other. There are several places in the Bible where human interconnectedness is likened to the human body made up of many different parts, with each member dependent on the other for the well-being of the body as a whole. In one of his letters, St Paul wrote, If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Or if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Society needs problem solvers, communicators, high achievers, even while society also needs people who can structure, plan and maintain consistency. And above all, society needs these different neurotypes to work together with a certain amount of mutual understanding and trust. Reflecting further on the body metaphor, Paul also wrote this, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers with it. It's estimated that about 5% of people in the UK has ADHD, so it is likely that includes someone you know. 
The majority don't take regular meds, but if you are connected to someone who is usually reliant on these, the next few months may be a time of particular stress and anxiety, as the current medication shortage is expected to continue into late spring. This affects not just those living with ADHD, but all of us, as we live together in our families, communities and networks. Not everyone chooses to be open about having an ADHD diagnosis, but if they are, now might be a good time to ask them how they experience this condition, both with its positives and negatives, and how you can support them if they are managing without their usual prescription. The body metaphor, and Paul's teaching around it, reminds us that diversity is no accident. God has always been attentive to those who feel divergent or far from the centre. As Jesus affirmed when he announced his ministry would be for the poor, the prisoners, the disabled and the oppressed. The psalmist too observes that God's attention and concern for us is so complete that one is hemmed in before and behind. Even if one strays to the very ends of the earth or drives to the pharmacy in the next village. Thus, while the media circus may be new, we can be sure that God has always been attentive to those with ADHD and wider society is called to be likewise. Writing for The Times, Esther Walker describes ADHD as the health story that keeps unfolding. Well, certainly every time I unfold my newspaper, there it is again. But ADHD challenges me to unfold my mind too to become ever more aware and appreciative of the fact that there are many ways to be human, usually complex, sometimes difficult, often brilliant, and always interconnected. Identifying as human has deadly implications by Barnabas Asprey. Christmas makes no sense without Easter. In Jesus of Nazareth, the Creator himself entered his creation to live among us. This is what Christians call the Incarnation. But why? What was the point of this identification with humanity? You might have expected these sorts of answers. He came to found the Christian religion, to teach us how to live and to gather a community of followers. These are true enough, but look inside any church building or read any part of the New Testament and you'll find that another thing is the focus, something that makes Jesus different to any other founder of a religion. He came to die. Jesus' death is the climax of all four gospel stories. It is evident that the point of the narrative is there. The rest of the Bible's New Testament spends more time describing the machinations that lead to Jesus' death than outlining what he taught. Does that mean it doesn't matter what Jesus taught? Of course not. Jesus' teachings matter tremendously to Christians. But his death matters still more. No doubt you knew that. The first thing anyone learns about Christianity is its symbol, the cross, on which Jesus was executed one of the cruelest forms of capital punishment that has ever been legal. Those executed on the cross were called crucified, a word which still has its shuddering power even today. 
Crucifixion was a death reserved for the lowest of the low. Common thieves, runaway slaves, rebels and lawbreakers. Yet this particular death was the ultimate goal of Jesus' life. Why? What's it all about? For Christians, Jesus' crucifixion strikes at the very root of all that is wrong with the world. To understand it, first we have to understand what Christians believe about that. If you fall into a pit you can't climb out of, then lack of information is not your problem. Nor does it matter how many other people are in the pit with you. Nobody down there can pull themselves or you out. Everyone agrees the world in its current state is, to put it mildly, less than ideal. Most put it down to a lack of education or to the stubborn foolishness of a few isolated individuals. If you believe that people behave badly because they are ill-informed, then you might think the solution is to teach people what is right. You'll put great faith in education, give people the information they need, and they will change their ways. Alternatively, if you believe other people are the problem, you can focus your attention on opposing them, imprisoning them, or stripping them of power somehow. But Christians believe that the root of the problem is far deeper, such that these efforts only scratch the surface and will never be effective in the long run. Christians believe that the whole of humanity has been damaged, cut off from its relationship to what matters by a primordial catastrophe that we call the fall. Human beings are not simply ignorant, and the problem does not lie in lack of information or education. The problem lies in our will, the part of us that chooses what is wrong, even when we know full well that it is wrong. And the problem is not just some people over there, conveniently set apart from me. Every single human being has been impacted, including you, including me. Every one of us is a part of the problem, which is why no one of us, however smart or well-informed we are, can be the solution. If you fall into a pit you can't climb out of, then lack of information is not your problem. Nor does it matter how many other people are in the pit with you. Nobody down there can pull you or themselves out. You need someone outside the pit who can reach down and grab hold of you. That is why Christianity is more than a moral program for self-improvement, or a set of spiritual practices comparable to those of other religions. According to Christians, the human race does not need another set of rules about how to live or a formula to cultivate mindfulness and inner peace. We need a saviour, someone who does not share our fallen condition, but who can reach down and lift us up to safety. How far did Jesus have to go? All the way to the bottom, which means death, even the worst kind of death. How did Jesus' death save us? Well, Christians have various theories about that. You may have heard the most common, which uses law court imagery. We were guilty and sentenced to capital punishment, but Jesus was punished instead, so we don't have to be. Some people love this theory and live by it. Others find it morally problematic and offensive. But the point is not the theory. The point is the reality to which it points. 
One way or another, by dying, Jesus reconnected us to God and restored the broken relationship. But it's stranger still than that, because Jesus' death is not the end. It was only the preliminary to something far more wonderful and transformative, a sign of a promise beyond our wildest hopes. By dying, Jesus defeated death itself and came back to life. If Christmas makes no sense without the cross, then the cross makes no sense without the resurrection. But more on that in my next article. Intermittent fasting? Try the 5th century playbook by Julie Canlis. Fasting, at least in the health world, is no longer a derogatory term, but one in vogue, particularly the merits of the restricted diet in which you limit the amount of time you eat either to a day, for instance to an eight-hour window, or a week, for instance skip eating on two different days. The latter approach, maybe surprisingly, follows in the footsteps of our religious forebears, who fasted every Wednesday and Friday. Could it be that they'd figured out a practice we are just discovering? And what else were they trying to achieve? To a medieval peasant in Britain, Lent ratcheted up the twice-weekly fast. It was 40 days of a vegan diet that often increased in intensity as the body adjusted, though the pregnant, young, sick and old were exempt. Lent also issued in much cultural creativity. Who knew that cathedral at Rouen was a Lenten byproduct, as those desperate for butter could get a dispensation by contributing financially to the butter towers, as they have become known? And Britons? may have lent to thank for both black peas, a Lancastrian delicacy, and fish and chips, as cooks were challenged to keep Lenten menus interesting. Despite our caricatures of Lent as a dour and draconian time, it was essential to the enjoyment of medieval life. Purpose of Lent was not the denial, but the renewal of pleasure. Maybe it's precisely that aspect that has echoed through the centuries, manifesting now in our punishing diets, tough mudder races and endurance stunts. Isn't that a bit part of why we, well, some of us do them? Our modern fascination with fasting can also receive wisdom from Lent, which is that fasting for its own sake will always lead to something unhealthy. It must be for the purpose of something greater. Our forebears worried that physical practices could become idolatry when wrenched out of their context of repentance. As G.K. Chesterton remarked, physical nature must not be made the direct object of obedience. It must be enjoyed, not worshipped. The Old Testament prophets were particularly grumpy about this, insisting that fasting would do no good if it did not also help you love your neighbour more or as the early 3rd century Christians who fled from Roman excess into the deserts remarked, if you fast regularly, do not be inflated with pride. If you think highly of yourself because of it, then you better eat some meat. 
Fasting on its own will not make us better people, though we might shed a few pounds. Fasting is to restore the pleasure not only to eating, but also to the soul in need of God. Interesting that one of the primary biblical metaphors for a lively spiritual life is that of feasting and eating. Fasting resets the soul with repentance. It is praying with our body. It is not a negation, but a purgation of desire. Not denying our desires, but resetting them. C.S. Lewis wondered whether our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, if you've considered intermittent fasting, or even if not, but you feel you might need a more balanced perspective on pleasure, consider the Lenten playbook. Feast and fast cyclically. Do it for a greater purpose than just losing weight. Let it change and reset your true desires. And maybe, just maybe, you might discover God waiting for you at the root of all your desires. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.